I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are Drs. Clint Burnham, Paul Kingsbury, Alessandra Capodoni, and Callum Matheson. They're here today to talk about their new book, Lacan and the Environment, published as part of the Palgrave Lacan series, edited by Callum Neal and Derek Hook. Clint Burnham is Professor of English and Chair of the Graduate Program in English at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and President of the Lacan Salon. His recent books include Does the Internet Have an Unconscious, Slavoj Žižek, and Digital Culture, from Bloomsbury 2018, and Frederick Jameson and The Wolf of Wall Street, from Bloomsbury 2016. Paul Kingsbury is Professor of Geography, Associate Dean of the Faculty of Environment at Simon Fraser University and Vice President of the Lacan Salon. His most recent scholarship draws on psychoanalysis in order to investigate the cultural geographies of paranormal investigations. He is co-author with Steve Pyle of Psychoanalytic Geographies from 2014 and with Gavin Andrews and Robin Kearns of Soundscapes of Well-Being in Popular Music from 2014. Alessandra Capodoni is lecturer in the Department of Humanities at Simon Fraser University, where she teaches literature, philosophy, and critical thought and animal studies. Her research explores desire, affect, trauma, and social imaginaries in three interrelated areas. The processual forms of language-oriented poetics and translation practices through the lens of the theories of the unconscious of Freud and Lacan, Marxist-inflected philosophies of language, post-structuralism and feminist theory, the work of literature and art in relation to violence and trauma, cultural work as phenomenological orientation toward the environment, and other than human animals, engendering the possibility of social links with different worlds. Callum Matheson is an assistant professor of public deliberation and civic life in the Department of Communication at the University of Pittsburgh, director of the William Pitt Debating Union, and a candidate at the Pittsburgh Psychoanalytic Center. His work focuses on intersections of Lacanian psychoanalysis, cultural studies, and rhetoric. He is the author of Desiring the Bomb, Communication, Psychoanalysis, and the Atomic Age. His articles have been published in Quarterly Journal of Speech, Review of Communication, Rhetoric Society Quarterly, Philosophy and Rhetoric, and other leading journals. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Chapart Films' YouTube channel. 
That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube or search for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Okay, so uh, I guess I'll begin as uh, the co-editor for the book. And uh, first of all, Vanessa, thanks for uh, having us on, onto your show. And um, just for the, uh, the viewers, my name is Paul Kingsbury. I'm a professor of geography and associate dean undergraduate at uh, Simon Fraser University. And uh, uh, like Clint and Alessandra, who uh, uh, you'll be talking to very soon, uh, Vanessa, I, I wanted to acknowledge from the outset that they were uh, speaking to you virtually. Uh, I'm located on the unceded and traditional territories of the Coast Salish uh, peoples, which include the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh uh, nations. So yeah, in our kind of uh, pre-party discussion, we uh, wanted to open up our uh, celebration of, of, of the book uh, by just uh, me covering the uh, the genesis of the book and like uh, a lot of books it has its uh, genealogy in a, in a pre-event a conference or, or paper sessions and for us it was uh, the fifth uh, La Conference event so this is very much part of the uh, one of the main activities of uh, Lacan Salon of which uh, Clint, uh, myself and Alessandra belong to and we've uh, kind of internationalized uh, during the pandemic and Zoom of many societies around the world and uh, so yeah it was the fifth uh, La, Conf La Conference uh, which took place in, in Vancouver back in April 2018 and uh, we I should acknowledge too that we, we got a lot of generous support from uh, Simon Fraser University's faculties departments including the English and geography uh, departments and the conference topic uh, you know, actually was transposed into the, the, the precise wording of the book's title. So the La Conference was called Lacan uh, and, the, and, and the Environment. Uh, and so we kind of framed the uh, con concept uh, of the environment in, in two ways, which uh, Clint will probably touch on uh, for our introduction uh, when we discuss that. So we think about the environment in terms of a, a socio and, and cultural environment. It's never simply the biophysical environment. And, and so we, we wonder to what extent the child or the subject or the analysis is asked to adapt to uh, the environment. So this, the notion of adaptation is really important, we think, uh, in Lacanian uh, thinking, particularly in terms of the inability of the subject to always adapt or to never be able to adapt. You know, the, uh, 
the uncanny uh, cut split uh, subject, uh, which is always struggling uh, and me uh, to adapt or even not want to adapt. So, uh, you know, the uh, Philippe Van Hort's uh, book against adaptation is uh, prominent here. And then we think uh, more along of the, of the environment as the planet's ecology, uh, which we uh, posit, we often force the environment to adapt to us. So we, we kind of project our desires, our, our uh, fancies onto the environment itself. And so we have this kind of two-way uh, thinking of the, uh, of the environment and the conferences, CFP, would, uh, we try and provoke uh, people to uh, come to the conference, of course. So we talk about the primordial uh, discord that Lacan talks about in the mirror stage. Uh, the repression of fundamental breaks between the ego in the environment. We ask about the environment of the clinic, uh, the space and dynamics of uh, the clinical space of uh, analysis itself, uh, the environment and the unconscious, residues of the real, uh, which uh, these themes kind of pervade the uh, book. So just to briefly stick with the conference, which uh, kind of forms the the, the Petri di dish for the, for the book, uh, we had a round table uh, session under the aegis of what does the environment want? Uh, so Todd McGowan, Cindy, uh, Cindy Zaya, uh, Matthew Flissfader, Alessandra and Clint were part of this, uh, the panel. Uh, the following day, so this was an evening event, the following day we had 16 papers and many of them made it into the book. Uh, and also it's topped off uh, uh, the La Conference by a keynote by Todd McGowan on self-destruction in the natural world. And, and this makes it into the book, uh, what Clint and I call in our intro uh, bravura conclusion. Uh, so the, the 16 papers uh, which made it into the book uh, become divided into four set, uh, sessions. Uh, so the sessions of the conference become the book's uh, four parts. Uh, and so in the book, we have Lacanian theory. Uh, second uh, part is our knowledge on climate change, lack of knowledge in the final section, uh, Vanessa's End of the World, which uh, brings together some of the ap ap apocalyptic uh, themes that uh, pervade some of the chapters. Uh, so yeah, Clint's going to uh, focus uh, on some of the, the intro uh, framings of the book, but we... Uh, you know, there's a strong commitment uh, in in, uh, in the various ways that Lacanian theory can think about uh, the environment and nature, particularly uh, as we're all well aware of being buffeted in the climate crisis of today, the uh, Anthropocene, uh, the ways in which uh, people can take uh, unconscious enjoyment in not, not acting or uh, wondering why other people, the climate deniers, corporations, governments, refuse to listen to science, do not act and, and, and enjoy their kind of uh, interpassivity or lack of action. So uh, it, it's a, obviously a rich topic, the environment. I think uh, one of the book's uh, strengths is the various angles and, and ways in which the environment can be understood, not simply as a biophysical natural environment, but also office environments in a chapter uh, on Bart Bartleby's uh, The Scrivener in, in terms of office space, uh, which uh, I can uh, get to later on. Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to Clint, who, uh, Clint, I think you'll talk about the intro a bit uh, and where we begin with a, a kind of uh, Oedipal provocation about uh, our basic attitude towards the environment in terms of do we want to make love to the environment 
uh, or do we hate the environment and, and, and these kind of conflicted cathaxes regarding the human uh, and subjects relationship to the environment. So yeah, I hope uh, I've given you a sort of background there, Vanessa, just the, the conference, uh, how it informed the book. Um, sorry, I, I won't jump in. I wanna see if Vanessa has any questions, first of all. Well, what was it like deciding to create this conference in the first place? Yeah, so it was the fifth uh, LAC conference. Uh, we, we like to um, formulate a theme for the conference. Uh, I think uh, 2018, the, we hadn't really uh, addressed the, the environment. Uh, it was, uh, I think, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, news stories of the day, living in uh, British Columbia, Pacific Northwest, there's uh, always a kind of attunement to environmental politics. Uh, I think uh, certainly Clinton, myself, other uh, Lacan, Salineers would have discussed the theme. Uh, so yeah, it, the theme is the thing, right? When it comes to uh, conference uh, structuring. And uh, again, you know, given that it's the fifth uh, event, uh, it, it's always a coming together of the Lacan Salon members, but also a, a guest there as well. And this is pre-pandemic, of course. So we uh, much of the, the joy of the conference is to host people, to bring people in and, uh, you know, see them in person. And uh, what I recall from that uh, conference, it, it went smoothly. And, and, you know, I'm really glad that we chose the environment as the topic because it was uh, fecund enough to uh, make the bridge into a book project. Yeah, and I haven't seen any other books like this out before. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Clint and I, you know, in talking about the book, book project, recognize you find the environment uh, scattered throughout certainly Lacan's work, and we address the uh, the sardine can uh, as, as one of the key uh, tropes in Lacan's works that addresses the environment and, and pollution. But, but like you say, yeah, I don't think there's been a, a dedicated book per se on Lacan and the environment in all its multifarious dimensions. So yeah, it, it, it's been, it was a great journey. And also, uh, I mean, there's a kind of an overlap in that uh, because some of us also go to uh, the LAC conference in particular, uh, the one organized by uh, uh, Hillary Neroni and uh, Todd McGowan and um, uh, a few others. And so, and just through email lists and that kind of thing. And so there's that kind of conversation going on um, as well. So readers of this book will know some people who've been on your podcast, uh, but also who, uh, you know, who, who show up in that kind of uh, North American uh, sort of context. And there's a, there's a pretty lively North American uh, Lacanian academic sort of community, I think, you know, of, of uh, both uh, academics and also um, graduate students. And so it's, uh, it's nice to continue these kind of out. It's weird, I was saying this to, to Isabel Miller the, other, Miller the other day, like for all Lacan's kind of, you know, um, mis misanthropic, if not misogynist, but you know, so his, his kind of dark side, Lacanians, at, at least the ones that I've met for the most part are, are very friendly. You know, it's just and like we, we don't repress. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of jump in and I, and I will say what a pleasure it is to be on your podcast, uh, uh, Vanessa. It's, it's something I listen to a lot. I just listened, as I was saying uh, earlier in the week, to uh, that long form interview with Danny Novus, who is he's such a sweet guy. He's such an amazing guy. And it's 
the, the different directions you guys went in that. It was, it was, it was awesome. But pleasure, you know, with all the fraught psychoanalytic resonances, uh, you know, carrying with it not a little anxiety. And I, even when Paul was talking about the subject, adapting to the environment, and both uh, Callum and I list, li lifted our coffee cups at the same time, and I like, oh my God, it's the uncanny. Here, here we are mimicking each other in the mirror of the uh, of uh, of Zoom. Um, uh, so I guess uh, this is a question that came up during the conference, uh, and I think it was Nathan Gorlick asked this question uh, during uh, Todd's um, uh, keynote, which is what does psychoanalysis bring to, uh, that is new to questions of the environment and the ecology and environmental politics and so on. And the two things we talk about in, uh, in the introduction are, first of all, the Freudian concept of ambivalence, uh, and also the Lacan, Lacan's notion of jouissance. So as Paul was saying, uh, thinking of the environment, uh, and uh, uh, thinking of, do we think of the environment as our mother or our child? Do we want to fuck it or to protect it? Um, so the earth gave, I didn't realize I, I took this note, the, the, the rhyme here, but the earth gave birth to us, uh, but is now dying. Uh, you know, this is a concept of the Anthropocene, but we're ambivalent towards our mother. Uh, we feel suffocated by her sometimes. There's a kind of a matricidal element to our SUV driving, pipeline building, uh, et cetera, sort of subjectivities. Or if the earth is our child, we have to take care of the earth as ocean levels rise. Uh, but again, our attitudes are ambivalent. Think of Freud's essay, A Child is Being Beaten, which points to a fundamental masochistic enjoyment so we asked, what are the unconscious fantasies, disavowed pleasures of the environmental activist? Whether one merely recycles or lays down one's body to stop a pipeline, there is always the danger of thinking of oneself as what Hegel called the beautiful soul or Lacan's logic of the phallic exception. There are the bad people, those climate deniers, and I'm, I'm this wonderful person. Then we also, um, in our introduction, sort of broke down attitudes towards the environment in Lacan, according to the, you know, the well-known uh, triad of the imaginary, symbolic, and the real. Uh, Paul mentioned the uh, mirror stage essay before, and in that, in that essay, Lacan used the phrase reflected environment. Um, and we wanted to preserve that tension between, as Paul said, between environment as nature and environment as one's surroundings in a more general sense. Two, in terms of the imaginary, the environment is both a site of jubilant activity, as Lacan puts it, of play, and also something we feel some antipathy towards, uh, more ambivalence. Uh, the symbolic then denotes the world of law, order, language, the big other. But Zizek warned us long uh, ago about the postmodern decline of the big other, or what Lacan called the university discourse. We don't trust science anymore. We're more likely to trust conspiracy theories. And indeed science, on the other hand, science is also this master signifier. When we say we want to listen to the science, we don't mean science because almost none of us understand the science. We just mean the scientist as a sort of an expert, a subject supposed to know. Hence the subjectivity of the climate deniers, which is, which of course also has a, you know, a, a political economy element to it. It's subvented both by the enormous efforts of the petroleum industries, the Koch brothers in the US, et cetera which have put into such propaganda, but also we, are, we argue more structural conditions of our subjectivity. And this is why we have now anti-vaxxers and COVID skeptics. Um, and we talked briefly about the pandemic in the after tour book, which, which perhaps we can talk about at the end of the podcast. So imaginary, symbolic, finally, in terms of the real, we can think of the environment as what Lacan calls das Ding, or the estimate 
intimate and external at the same time, the extimate kernel of our unconscious that is both in us more than us, that is the unconscious is in some ways unnatural, a motivation that we do not understand and external to us, what Mark de Kessel calls a radical exteriority that is only accessible to us through topological or post-Euclidean structures like the Mobius strip or the Klein bottle. And if you'll permit me, Vanessa, I'd like to conclude, uh, as Paul was mentioning earlier, with this discussion with, of our introductory remarks to the volume with the famous story of Lacan and the sardine can. In seminar 11, Lacan tells the story of being on vacation. He's a young intellectual in Brittany and going out on a small fishing boat. This is a very dangerous occupation of the fishers, the fishermen. Uh, many die quite young of tuberculosis. This is before the industrialization of fishing, but not probably before overfishing, if you think of W.G. Sebo's discussion of the herring fisheries in the rings of Saturn. But anyway, they're out on the boat, beautiful sunny day, and one of the fishermen, Petit Jean, or Tijon, points to a sardine can twinkling in the water. You see that can? Do you see it? Well, it doesn't see you. Lacan is out of place as intellectual in a working class scene. But this is also the sardine can as pollution. And we can think of, say, the garbage patch in the Pacific, which is you know, the size of Texas, of nanoplastics we cannot see and that are in all fish and all sea salt now. That is to say, pollution is nature. But we shouldn't think the sardine can is the subject supposed to know, it doesn't see you. It is subject, to be sure, not substance, it lacks. Pollution lacks. This is Lacan like to quote uh, James Joyce's phrase uh, from a thing in Swake, I believe. Pollution is a letter. It ignores the letter of the law. Chernobyl radiation, Fukushima, acid rain, all those uh, forms of pollution ignore international boundaries. And as of course do other effects of the climate crisis. Our region of North America, the Pacific Northwest has seen disaster after disaster over the past few months. The heat dome and forest fires of the summer. And just this past week, a once in a century storm caused by an atmospheric river that resulted in mudslides, flooding, and a tremendous disruption to an already fragile supply chain. And of course, effects felt on both sides of the Canada-US border between British Columbia and Washington state. And of course, the state will also weaponize climate denialism to its own end, that's what I sort of finish with, uh, or rather the ends of capital. This past weekend in British Columbia, when the National Police Force, the RCMP, diverted resources from rescue operations in the flooded zone, so attempts to mitigate the effects of climate disaster, to better hit an indigenous blockade on which so it's in territory in the north, a pipeline blockade. So they take away from helping people affected by climate change to attack people who are trying to stop climate change, counting as well on media attention on the floods. This is a case of the environment qua imaginary media images of washed out highways and flooded farmlands. And we talk in our introduction about uh, the uh, images of uh, forest fires in the Amazon and how trustworthy they are. Of those images trumping, but also aiding and abetting the big other state violence, the better to repress the real anti-pipeline activists, that is, who are attempting to stop the very climate destruction that contributes to flooding. So there's the, the big picture. Uh, you know, Freud, uh, Earth is the mother or a child, 
imaginary, symbolic, and real, and then finishing up with a sardine can because you can never, I always love talking about a sardine can. I've written about it like so many times. It's a great story. Yeah. Um, so the next is Alessandra's contribution. Yes, yeah, so thank you, uh, Vanessa. First of all, can you hear me fine? Because I have sometimes uh, internet problems. Um, first of all, thanks uh, for the invitation and uh, for giving us uh, this um, uh, welcome uh, uh, opportunity to present uh, this work, uh, which uh, uh, was uh, extremely uh, interesting in the way it came uh, uh, together, but also in the final product that uh, at least I personally have been enjoying uh, very much for the, the wide variety of uh, uh, papers that, uh, that it contained. Um, my chapter is uh, uh, entitled, Does the Animal Desire? And uh, um, in, in, it was uh, um, it was a, a chapter difficult to write. I have to say um, it left me very uh, insecure for the fundamental questions that uh, I was asking. Now I am an animal person. Um, I'm interested in work also in animal studies. Um, but you know, when you were speaking about animals, uh, uh, there is always uh, the danger of speaking about anotherness, uh, which we cannot really represent, or what that otherness means for, for us as humans, who are obviously uh, human animals, but nonetheless of a different of a different kind. And so a certain danger at uh, um, objectification in that sense or a construction of the knowledge of the other. And especially the difficulty speaking about uh, um, animals in the context of a psychoanalytic theory. So the paper had to be quite speculative in that sense. I did not want to talk about uh, the role of animals psychoanalytically for humans, or at least not uh, as a sole angle, but really um, question the idea of the animal, how it comes up or does not come up as it should in psychoanalytic theory, and uh, uh, fundamentally whether the animal has an unconscious or not, because we cannot speak about psychoanalysis outside of the question of the uncons unconscious. So um, the, the paper addresses uh, uh, the relation, basically. This is the angle that I took of Freud and Lacan's thought to philosophy. Um, not because the philosophy has uh, a unique uh, standing in this, uh, in this question, but I read it more as a symptomatic, as a discourse of the way in which uh, throughout the human history, especially in the Western world, that the animal has been situated, has been located. And so somehow the, the role that the animal question plays in these um, uh, discourses. Um, and uh, uh, the idea was uh, to start from uh, the distinction that Freud was already drawing amongst the notions of needs, instincts, and drives, which per se are already quite a fraught concept because necessarily they are entangled with a, a more biological, um, so species uh, um, uh, understanding or one which is connected more to the question of language. 
And uh, these distinctions that uh, are further then elaborated by Lacan in relation to the triad that Clinton was talking about, the registers of the uh, imaginary and the symbolic in, in particular. So all of these distinctions seem to speak of an impossibility of speaking of an animal psychoanalytic act because the animal is excluded from the domain of language. However, in working on this paper, when I was first presenting it the conference, I, bumped, I went back to the first seminar of Lacan because I remembered that there was a quite an extensive and unique discussion on the question of the animal in relation to the register of the imaginary. And I bumped into this quotation that opens also as an epigraph of my, um, my essay, uh, speech is essentially the means of gaining recognition. That is why, in a sense, one can speak of the language of animals. Animals have a language, langage, to the degree that there is a someone there to understand it. And I thought that it was a beautiful way, even if it was not already speaking about a topological structure, but um, toppling the question of the language onto itself and not so much who has or does not have a language, but how language functions altogether um, in relation to uh, the uh, unconscious. So this was really my, my first step. Um, and I wanted to consider also why uh, Freud and Lacan uh, um, do not specifically address the relation of animals to psychoanalysis, except in Freud we have obviously the role that animals play in the human psyche with the Platonism. Um, and uh, in the case of Lacan, there is uh, this larger section in seminar one on the role of the imaginary in the lives of uh, mammals and the whole notion of um, uh, mimicry. But um, if we think about uh, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis and the discussion of the register of the symbolic in particular, it seems uh, almost at odds with the possible inclusion of animals in a psychoanalytic theory. Um, this is also one, uh, one of the reasons that uh, in uh, um, the animal that the four am Jacques Derrida seems to take uh, Lacan to task on, on this notion. However, I had to reconsider this, uh, this idea, but the only way uh, that I could uh, address it was really penetrated by reinterrogating the field of philosophy through uh, the discourse of philosophy through um, the parameters of a psychoanalysis. So in a way, it allowed me to reflect a bit on psychoanalysis in, uh, uh, in that sense. Uh, so I um, went over a kind of an overview highlighting the different fundamental moment in which the discourse of uh, um, philosophy has uh, constituted itself uh, in a certain way throughout uh, uh, centuries around the question of uh, language and uh, rationality um, uh, by giving for, for granted uh, somehow and constructing uh, in, uh, in, in this way the alterity of the animal to the human. In the kind of deconstructive uh, um, approach that they took relies uh, at every step on uh, 
some of the tenets that uh, Lacan is uh, uh, highlighting throughout his uh, um, his uh, work. Um, so I did not follow one specific uh, seminar or one specific uh, um, angle of uh, uh, Lacan, but I started reading and uh, gathering all these uh, almost marginal comments that Lacan constantly has in punctuating uh, his own theory, making reference to animals, something that I had not noticed uh, at the first reading. So it gave me an opportunity of rethinking how the animal is always there, is always uh, um, included. Uh, and clearly, the, the, one of the major questions that was uh, interesting me was, uh, um, in part, uh, what does it mean to say that the animal does not have a language, and so reverting uh, this uh, uh, this notion, but the kind also of uh, recognition and misrecognition that uh, are constantly going on between the human animal and the non-human animal in the field of uh, uh, discourse, and so there were different moments when uh, um, I found that uh, even. Uh, uh, philosophy shows its own lack, its own lack in, uh, in its ability somehow to grapple with, uh, um, with the questions that relies on, uh, a, pri on a priori uh, exclusion of the animal other. So can uh, we speak then of the unconscious of animals? Is animal desire limited to Hegel's famous articulation? Uh, of animal desire opposed to the human desire, or does it partake of the structure of the human? Um, or uh, if, uh, as Ux uh, school claims, uh, animals are captured by the ring of their umwelt, uh, a fundamental notion elaborated later by Heidegger, isn't human language just another form of umwelt? Uh, and if we take more into um, uh, consideration uh, um, uh, the elaboration of Lacan's theory around the real, which is always there, obviously, from the very beginning, but acquires uh, quite a prominent role in the later stages of his uh, seminars, uh, how can we um, unravel the question in a different, uh, um, different ways? Um, there, there were different uh, moments when uh, um, it was uh, difficult uh, somehow to coalesce uh, this uh, interrogation into a thesis, uh, let's say. And so this is why I preferred to, <clears throat> to have it um, uh, um, uh, coagulate around the question that opens uh, uh, the essay, which is uh, the title question, Does the Animal Desire? Uh, but also the ways in which uh, the essay is uh, concluded, which uh, uh, is an inkling, obviously, to uh, Derrida and uh, uh, the question of asking when we look into the eyes of uh, an animal, of our pets, that many of us are, um, uh, share lives with, uh, what is it that uh, we are seeing and what kind of subject is, uh, uh, is there? Uh, and that goes uh, back to the question they demand. Uh, what does the animal 
ask of us and how do we respond to that demand? Because the, there are several instances in the essay where I show that even the examples that are discussed by philosophy, in fact, reveal that the demand is a stake, even if it's not verbalized in, uh, um, in a human, uh, human language. Um, it was an essay also that uh, had something of the personal. My own cat was uh, was was dying, but was really in the final stages of his life at the time. So it took almost an emotional turn in, uh, in the moment when I was uh, trying to uh, conclude it. Uh, but I liked the way in which uh, um, it was attempting, uh, so it was a challenge, but also very interesting for me for uh, attempting to bring together discourses that are very often seen as oppositional, the philosophical and the, the psychoanalytical. Um, also the ways in which uh, it gestures at several points uh, in terms of uh, to the responsibility toward uh, the um, uh, environment, and so asking really broader questions with certain implications. Once the paper was already submitted and the book was already in uh, uh, the stages of uh, its uh, editorial completion, uh, we were also in the middle of the COVID crisis. And at that point, uh, it was very interesting for me to reflect again on what I had written for uh, the way in which uh, the question of language altogether was uh, taking up almost a different uh, dimension in that moment of uh, um, uh, speaking at silence. So this uh, noise that goes down all of a sudden in our cities, uh, everything that comes almost to a still, people rushing to get pets because all of a sudden they cannot deal just with each other or family <laughs> relations, but they need this extra being inserting itself into final dynamic, something that unfortunately now we see in the opposite uh, um, uh, relation, pets being uh, expelled once again from the family unit and shelters uh, coming to terms with, uh, with the crisis. So it was interesting even after uh, the essay to keep thinking about uh, the uh, implications of that uh, uh, discourse, uh, but through <clears throat> the lens of the crisis that had brought uh, certain, uh, certain dynamics and certain uh, uh, um, cracks somehow into the open, like a gaping hole that all of a sudden we had to uh, confront. Uh, so I will leave it at that uh, for the moment and pass this to Callum, but uh, uh, please feel free to ask any question or discuss further. Yeah, that's so great that you included that chapter in the, in the book, because it's like, when, when I've been noticing this lately, when you read any like philosophy text, psychology, psychoanalytic text, it's always just assumed not only that we're different than animals, but that we're superior to animals. And it seems like such a fundamental kind of given in like philosophical and psychological thought for such a long time, that it's like our entire humanity is kind of based, it feels like everyone's based this, based our humanity on this fact that we are superior to animals, superior to the earth, um, and really have objectified them. Um, yeah, obviously to like a detrimental degree. 
And I like also how Lacan, for example, is speaking of the human as a domestic, uh, which is spelled in the French in one of his many neologisms that he's using, uh, is uh, the domestic animal uh, somehow. And uh, so he, linguistically, he's always uh, tweaking and uh, uh, making fun of this assumption of uh, uh, the particular status that we are supposed to occupy in the natural world. But at the first read, you don't, you know, you, you take Lacan for Lacan and you can move over or move on in this writing. But once you read with the animal in mind, is uh, uh, amazing at the many references that you find step by step without coalescing it into a full uh, a full theory, of course. Uh, Alessandra, does does is his neologism domestic? Does it involve domestic and om as in man, like lom? Uh, yes, the apostrophe om is stick. Ah, nice. Where is that? It is in the television. Um, I think, oh, okay. Okay. Don't check. yes, I think, it, yes, it is in television. <laughs> this is something that Vanessa is going to edit out. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, Callum, do you want to present your chapter? Sure. Um, Hi, so I want to start by echoing the thanks to you, Vanessa, for having us all here, to Clinton Paul for organizing all of this, obviously making the book possible, and to um, Alessandra as well for a, a fascinating preceding discussion there and a really interesting project. I wrote about <clears throat> doomsday preppers. So <laughs> my interest in this grew out of my first book in 2019 called Desiring the Bomb, which examined the ways that people imagine the end of the world and the way that they simulate the end of the world and attach to it. And a big part of that was writing about uh, doomsday preppers, about people who prepare to survive the end of the world and to rebuild a new society afterwards. And the argument I made there, which I think applies to the way that people imagine climate change to some degree as well, is that there's a kind of Fort Da relationship to apocalypse, that the there is a pleasure in imagining and an enjoyment in imagining the end of the world when one imagines oneself to have agency over the conditions of its presence and absence. So what I mean is <clears throat> there's an enjoyment in imagining that the world is gone and that one can bring it back. One can bring some new thing to replace it. If you read a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction in particular, a lot of it has a kind of hopeful or even gleeful notes in a certain way and that the survivors always end up rebuilding something with all of the terrible things of the preceding society washed away whatever they imagine those things are from you know their own perspective of the right and the left and so on and a lot of um, climate change imagination I think works in a kind of similar vein in Lacan's discussion of Fort Da the thing that the child enjoys is not that the world is gone or that the toy is gone in the child's case or that it's present or else if you know if it wanted the toy and wanted it to be present it wouldn't keep throwing it out of the crib and if it wanted it back um, or wanted it gone it wouldn't keep sort of hauling it back into the crib itself the thing that the child enjoys then isn't presence and absence it's the simulation of control over presence and absence and 
you saw this in the Cold War, for example, and people who built bunkers and imagined that they would survive the end of the world and then had these complex philosophical debates about shooting or even eating the neighbors and who to let in and who to keep out and so on. And there's a clear element of enjoyment. It is not unalloyed horror. It's a preparation for something that has its own kind of necessarily disavowed attraction to it as well. The particular group of climate change imaginers that I'm interested in are uh, Silicon Valley doomsday preppers. There's, a, there's this image of doomsday preppers, especially in the United States, I think, being people who live in the backwoods and rural areas who you know, are generally uneducated or uncultured and so on, that they're hillbillies, basically, and that this is the way that they'll live through the world, essentially, strangely, because they're closer to nature in a certain way, but also because they're you know, denied some of the aspects that define them as being privileged members of society. Prepping also happens, and perhaps to a much greater degree, in much wealthier spaces, including in Silicon Valley. People like Peter Thiel, for example, who has bought land in New Zealand. New Zealand is the big thing. New Zealand is the place that Silicon Valley uh, tech magnets imagine that they will survive, weather the apocalypse and survive. There's a lot of talk about pandemics before this pandemic. Um, and one of the, the kind of big things that the, this variety of prepper imagines is that the poor will rise up someday because automation has displaced them or because climate change has destroyed the conditions that made their lives livable and so on. All things that they themselves contribute to directly through the activities of the businesses that they own, through their investments, through the systems that they maintain. It's an imagination of the end of the world that has the usual Fort Da element of imagining the world has ended and imagining that one can survive and rebuild but another layer to it as well, and that there's a direct participation by some of these people as agents that will bring about potentially the kind of fantasies that they imagine, that they claim to abhor and in fact prepare for and perhaps desire in a certain sense as well. And some of this writing is a response to uh, Jeffrey Keel's book, Facing Climate Change, which argues that there's a positive potential for anxiety and imagining climate change that maybe, and this, this mirrors arguments that were made about uh, disarmament in the 1980s and before, um, nearly every social horror one says, some, someone somewhere says, if only people understood how bad it would be, if only they could imagine what it would really be like, then no one would support these kinds of things. I think that that is wrong that imagining what it would really be like is part of the attraction for some people. Imagining that the world is washed away is part of the attraction of doomsday prepping, that what you are really doing is simulating to build a new society and the enjoyment of it comes from those simulations. So there is this kind of Fort Da enjoyment of it and maybe even a kind of more direct one as well and that it reaffirms this concept of the subject as a sovereign being that can remake the conditions of reality, whether you're imagining the end of the world or not, just being an agent capable of affecting a system as you know, timeless and massive as the global climate has a sense of power and control to it that may be attractive rather than repellent. And that's part of what makes Silicon Valley doomsday prepping, I think, indicative of a larger dynamic that one has to face when one talks about ways that one might respond to um, systems that imperil human survival overall, that fundamentally they lack a certain 
value to them and that that might be inevitable. That the real question that they kind of paper over is why we care at all, that societies continue, that beings continue, that human beings survive and so on. That there's a certain formlessness to it that has to be avoided. And skipping that question to get right to the point where we can provide hope either in adaptation or avoiding the crisis um, or in survival and rebuilding um, kind of misses, I think, what might be the actually generative anxiety that results from this confrontation with climate change. So Lacan writes in seminar 10, the anxiety isn't just fear of, isn't distinguished from fear simply by the absence of an object. What distinguishes anxiety is that it is not without an object. In other words, anxiety is what happens when the process of Fort Da is interrupted. When one imagines that the thing is there, the object of desire imagines that it's gone and enjoys the capacity to control its presence. Anxiety is what happens when one can be not without the object. In other words, when this imagination of control over the object's presence and absence dissipates because the object is suddenly too present. That kind of anxiety, I think, is quite different than the kind of anxiety that results from talking about or, you know, the infinite, the infinite number of pie charts and so on about the state of global climate, that those are invitations to fantasy rather than the interruptions of the conditions that make fantasy possible and underpin our kind of failure to confront existential threats to human survival. So if we decide that we want to do something about that collectively, it'll require an interruption of fantasy that is much more fundamental than simply uh, adding to the science fictional lurid descriptions that describe the end of the world, which you know, is the kind of environment that a lot of Silicon Valley tech industrialists were raised in in the first place and enjoy and imagine themselves thriving in after the rest of us are dead. Yeah, and this is another topic that's been in like human consciousness forever, as well as this like apocalypse. And that it seems like people have imagined they've been living through the apocalypse for like as long as there's been people, <laughs> at least writing books. <laughs> um, so that's interesting as well. And then, of course, the fact that people like Elon Musk are planning to like colonize Mars and people imagine they can live in space. It's like we have this planet that's like really self-sufficient and has like a you know magnetic barrier that keeps like solar rays from like burning us and you know it, it regulates itself pretty well and we can't just let it keep going but we imagine we can build some like artificial place to live in, in outer space and that that's gonna work um and if we did somehow do that like what kind of life is that though? It's like, what it's like, do you think life is just actually like physically surviving and like eating these, like, I don't know, tablets of nutrients and like wearing a depends, you know, like, <laughs> like, is that really like life? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Space like travel is interesting. Wally. Yeah. Yeah. Just the like biological survival of like otherwise basically immobile human beings and so on. I mean, I mentioned space travel briefly in the chapter, but Mars is the new backyard bunker. Like the, then the first wave, it was literally digging a bunker in your backyard. And then in the second wave of doomsday prepping, it was moving to the suburbs and imagining that the people in the inner cities would be destroyed, which has its own kind of 
racial and class legacy, especially in the American, and I mean, the United States of America imagination. And the new wave is to just imagine that we'll be uprooted and that we'll live on Mars somehow. And that question of like what life would be like, I think is interesting, partly because it's hard from, were we to avert climate change altogether? were everything to turn out just peachy and the, and the climate deniers are wrong and so on and so forth. The kind of life that Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and so on imagine for us is already as if we're dead in a certain sense. There isn't really all that much difference between being a product of an Amazon warehouse and being blasted out of a cannon at Mars so that the you know, mitochondrial legacy of the human species continues. Yeah, and of course they um, want to that, like mine it as well. They like plan to like find minerals and like mine other planets that they can make money that way. Sure, why not? <laughs> uh, Vanessa, I was wondering if uh, Paul and I could tag team a bit here and just mention a few of the other chapters, and then we could have a wrap up discussion. Does, does that work for you? Oh yeah. All right, go for it, Paul. Hey, thanks, Clint. So. Um, you know, when, you, when you've published a book, maybe as a sole author, or in, in this case, uh, as co-editor with Clint, it's always interesting to uh, go back to the book after it's been published. And um, so when I was listening to Alessandra talk about a chapter, as, as the uh, co-editor, I'm always thinking about uh, the labor and patience involved in getting the uh, epigraph for uh, Alessandra's chapter at the top. Uh, and, and, and uh, I do like uh, collaboration projects. So with Clint, we, we had this back and forth to what extent we will push uh, Palgrave and thanks uh, Derek uh, Hook and Cal Neal for the support. But uh, so Clint and I were, had this wonderful editorial uh, back and forth about to what extent we should uh, not cede our desire or Alessandra's desire towards the epigraph. Um, but thankfully the, the epigraph uh, was in there correctly uh, as far as I understand. So it, it's always interesting the, uh, the looking back at the project that is, uh, has been completed. And so, yeah, I, I was just reminiscing of, of that editorial moment. So that, I guess that's my intro then is the, uh, so we're, we're kind of uh, all pro proletariats to jouissance as Lacan says about uh, the burden of enjoyment and, and the editor, co-editor is, is both the, uh, in a sense the, the masterful host for the book in terms of the organization of the sections uh, the inclusions, exclusions of chapters. And so this then would be uh, what chapters do we uh, affirm or underscore for the book? And, and so uh, I've got two uh, motivations here. Maybe one is a, as a geographer. So I'm always attuned to the role of place, space, scale, and so on within Lacan's work. Uh, and, and certainly this is uh, part of the, uh, the book. Uh, so I would... Uh, direct readers, uh, uh, potential readers who should become readers for the book to uh, Alma Krilich's uh, chapter four, where uh, Alma, who is part of the Lacan Salon, so maybe there's a bias there too, but uh, she focuses on the work environment uh, in help, uh, Herman Melvin's uh, story, The uh, Bartleby, The Scrivener, which uh, was first published, I think in 1853. And so uh, Alma looks at how Bartleby kind of enjoys his office environment in terms of this uh, inactivity uh, of preferring not to work. So I prefer not to, this preferring not to is uh, Bartleby's uh, kind of uh, refrain. 
and so Alma looks into uh, rather than simply uh, regard uh, Bartleby's uh, uh, as a kind of simple refu refusal or as a simply passive resistance. She uh, in the chapter thinks about the interior environment of Bartleby's office has these comings and goings of people. There's a kind of indeterminacy to the addressee. Who is he exactly speaking to? And she kind of thinks about while well, he stays in the his office environment as a as a form of uh, of enjoyment, uh, and Alma kind of engages uh, Alenka Zupanchich's uh, writings on Bartleby and politics of non-preference, and so yeah, she uh, really considers the uh, office space as an environment uh, and its relationship to uh, perhaps a kind of masochistic uh, enjoyment on Bartleby's. Half perhaps he uh, is kind of uh, adopting a kind of third space uh, uh, politics, what uh, Alma calls a no man's land, neither adapting nor resisting the environment as a way uh, of uh, reattuning our, uh, our ecological awareness, our relationships to the environment. So for me, the uh, Alma Kriditch's chapter four is, is a great example of the a kind of very expansionist way of thinking the environment uh, and particular uh, spaces. So that would be uh, one chapter uh, outing uh, direct readers to. Clint. Um, thanks, Paul. Uh, yeah, and we were talking about uh, New Zealand before and uh, we have a New Zealand uh, contributor, uh, Cindy Zyher, uh, whose essay is called uh, Love Thy Enemy, Environmental Politics. And uh, uh, Cindy works through Robert Fowler's uh, theory, which we also see in Zizek of interpassivity, uh, but also the Freud Freudo-Lacanian concept of the neighbor and Agamben's notion of sovereignty uh, to inquire into the status of jouissance in the environment. And she means by the environment, two environments, uh, nature and culture, rather like the friend or enemy or frenemy uh, signaled by Carl Schmitt's work uh, or the neighbor. The environment, Zahir tells us, is indifferent to our jouissance. And so we asked Kevoy, or what does it want? Uh, this uncertainty underlies Fowler's interpassivity, which is the various subjects supposed to know, enjoy, desire, and so on. But also perhaps Callum Matheson's preppers. Uh, here I am thinking not only of the toilet paper ho hoarders during early COVID, but also panic shopping that took place in our region uh, just uh, this past week uh, during local floods when supply chain for, uh, were interrupted. You know, there's a kind of a, a tautology of interpassivity that happens with, uh, with um, in, in any of these kind of situations where um, it's, it fundamentally uh, um, sort of circles around this subject who is presumed to have taken away something or to have desired something too much. And so therefore, I, and because I don't like my desire as well, that kind of relationship. So yeah, Cindy's uh, paper was really good too in terms of uh, helping us think about, uh, you know, is the climate denier uh, a kind of a neighbor? Uh, are they an enemy or a friend? Um, and how are they, uh, how are they pathologized? Uh, another chapter, uh, Hilda Fernandez uh, Alvarez, who is working on a, a PhD in geography, uh, so I, I, I work alongside Hilda to uh, help supervise that. Uh, and, and so the, I guess the geography here would be the environment in terms of the Japanese uh, Okagara forest. Uh, so Hilda relates this forest space as, uh, you know, forests, uh, natural environments, nature itself often idealized. Uh, but in this space, we see the uh, ecological 
condescending from a kind of idealized uh, apex uh, down to a nadir, a kind of a lowliest form, because this uh, uh, space is uh, this forest is a is a frequent uh, space for suicides. Uh, for Japanese youth, uh, they they kind of almost flock to this uh, site, and so you have this kind of uh, question that Hilda brings to the fore: is uh, well, is there something uh, specific to this uh, forest space? Is there something uh, perhaps from a, a Marxist uh, uh, line of inquiry would be: uh, is there something about the social conditions of the youth, their relationship to the forest site? Is it uh, as Hilda asks a a dark incandescence in terms of its, uh, in a Bataillian sense of something that uh, uh, draws in a, in a kind of jouissance uh, ridden way, uh, young people to commit suicide. Uh, and in a Lacanian vein, she asks, is it akin to the Lacanian letter, a sort of inscription that uh, cuts even as it communicates, and it severs and leaves residues unbearable, perhaps for some of the uh, people who visit there for the uh, the suicidal act. And uh, as we mentioned in the intro, uh, Hilda does a really good job. She doesn't uh, offer a pat answer to uh, what it is about the uh, forest, but rather she complicates uh, our relationship to understanding the uh, agency of uh, uh, natural spaces or forest spaces in terms of what Hilda calls a psych eco ecological relationship between the subject and, and nature. Uh, she then, uh, towards the end, thinks about the uh, issues of waste, which is a, a kind of theme earlier on in the book. Uh, perhaps, Clint, you, you want to talk about your chapter here with the uh, issue of garbage dumps. Uh, but for Hilda, the, the forest then perhaps is another kind of garbage dump in, insofar as it's the dumping of, of, of life itself, uh, a perfect site, if you will, as, as Hilda puts it, for an ultimate uh, act of uh, suicide. So. You, Again, I like this chapter in terms of the different uh, contrasts, uh, figurations of the environment in the book. Uh, thanks, Paul. And instead of talking about myself, I'll, I'll just talk about another one of the chapters, uh, uh, Alois Stevens' uh, Staying with the Anxiety, uh, the Ecological Object CA of Inuit uh, Throat Singing. So Alois draws, as uh, Callum was mentioning, on the Lacan Seminar 10 on anxiety um, as a way of understanding the extractive logic uh, underwriting settler colonialism, a logic of desire, which is in turn, in turn stymied by the jouissance of Tanya Tagak's throat singing. Simultaneously avant-garde and traditional, Tagak learned this practice of her ancestors from cassette tapes, um, but she also regularly performed with Kronos Quartet. She's also an accomplished novelist. This throat singing unsettles its audience with its heavy breathing and orgasmic auditory signification. And I think this is again in that, in that fine formulation that uh, Callum had of Lacan's of uh, anxieties, that which is not without an object. And that's always the, for me, for reading Lacan, um, it's always about paying attention to, especially the way in which he uses those kind of double negatives. Uh, he's not saying it's with an object, he's saying it's not without an object. And that's a, a key kind of uh, um, uh, uh, a very fine sort of distinction in terms of how to conceive of why anxiety is different from fear. And uh, while for my trifecta spotlighting of a 
a chapter, it would be uh, the last, uh, you know, chapter proper before uh, uh, Clinton or uh, afterward. Uh, it's chapter 16 uh, by Todd McGowan, which is uh, based on Todd's uh, excellent keynote he gave at the uh, La Conference uh, called uh, Self-Destruction in the Natural World. Uh, so he kind of uh, uh, begins the chapter think, uh, thinking about uh, Kant's uh, uh, discussion in a critique of practical reason where Kant juxtaposes the uh, the grandeur of the starry skies above with the finitude of the uh, of the Kantian subject which is uh, not so much small because it's uh, a space or the subject is uh, beholden to or encapsulates the the uh, the grandeur of the moral law and so uh, Todd does a really fantastic job in his classic McGowan clarity but uh, profound thinking at the same time to think about the tension uh, between uh, the the finite finitude of the subject and the grandeur of the starry sky McGowan suggests that Kant gets this wrong in terms of the uh, spatial relationship between the two but moreover uh, Todd thinks about how uh, self-destruction is is more uh, uh, an accurate description of the subject rather than uh, having a predilection to do the right thing, the, 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 uh, which Todd links to uh, issues of saving the planet. Why, what, we really should uh, be questioning our capability of human subjects to save the planet if we are more inclined to uh, uh, prefer to uh, eat, eat steaks and uh, fellatio rather than uh, reproductive cell sex or healthy eating so you have this uh really nice uh uh you know uh, it, it's a chapter that fizzes with a lot of uh, short circuiting of uh kantian presuppositions contemporary planetary uh, ecological politics and uh yeah we we, we say that uh, mcgowan gives us a good good early warning about the prospects of uh, environmentalism and, and it's often uh sanguine and positive uh outlook um, yeah, I think Todd is uh, the classic Lacanian in that he pretends to be more of an asshole than he really is. I mean, you know, he's also like a Prius driver, right? And, you know, he has that great joke. Why does a Prius driver drive with one hand so they can pat themselves on the back at the same time? Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll finish up by talking about uh, and then talk about the conclusion. But uh, Matt Fleischfader's chapter from the sublime to the hysterical sublime, reading the end of the world against the singularity. Uh, like Todd's, it's in the final sec, Todd McGowan's, this chapter is in the final section of our book, The End of the World, which takes its inspiration uh, from the bon mot of Slavoj Žižek, or was it Frederick Jameson, that it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Uh, Fleischfeder does as the service of bringing Jameson together with Lacan, calling first for the sublime hysterical position, the one who questions desire as formulated in Lacan's Encore seminar, and then for the hysterical sublime or Jameson's concept of the postmodern where our environment is now resolutely technological. Here we can think of the social media phenomenon of doing it for the gram where people do all kinds of dangerous things, posing at the end, end, edges of waterfalls and so on to get a picture for uh, Instagram, which happened this past week in our region where Instagrammers were trying to get photographs of the flooding and thereby hindering rescue efforts. Again, the imaginary versus the real. 
Um, but maybe I'll just add one final uh, sort of uh, uh, plug for, for our book on that, and then we can see if we have any uh, wrap-up questions from the very patient Vanessa. <laughs> it's very late at night in Stockholm, I know, in Sweden. Um, and this is to talk about our conclusion where we discuss that, if you remember that fantasy of a resurgence of nature uh, during early COVID, deer wandering through cities, dolphins in the canals of Venice, the Himalayas uh, visible through uh, unpolluted skies, Again, as with uh, climate deniers, the COVID skeptics and anti-vaxxers demonstrate the implacability of the unconscious and desire in the face of so-called facts and science. And the turn to the imaginary, those kind of images of deer and dolphins, as a retreat from the real. After all, uh, we point out, uh, rather dystopian, <laughs> the coronavirus came to us from nature, did it not? So, uh, that's us, and uh, um, yeah, let's see if there's any, any kind of final uh, comments or questions. Yeah, well, I was just gonna say that the last the last episode before your episode is gonna be Todd McGowan, so that's also nicely, nicely fits. It's the last chapter in the book before the after it, and it's the last podcast before your podcast. <laughs> Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I guess I have to finish watching uh, Squid Game because apparently Todd is talking about it in January. Yes, but right? now he's not because he was oh, going okay. to when I interviewed Danny. But um, he's, yeah, since we talked, now he's going to do Hitchcock. Oh, good. That's better. That's better. <laughs> It'll be fun. It's, he's still talking in January, so stay tuned. January 23rd. But it's going to be Alfred Hitchcock and then Mary Wilde presenting on Polanski films. So it's going to be good. They're both uh, great. Cool. Mm -hmm. I want to hear about your so garbage you, Vanessa, chapter was... too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, just very, very quickly. What I did was I, I did two different things. I, I looked at the people who clean up the internet. So content moderators, there's a documentary about them called The Cleaners. Um, and the documentary that is set in, in Manila and they actually live, some of them live next to the actual garbage dump, this massive sort of garbage dump in the slum. And uh, there's a great line in the, in the film, a great slash depressing line, where the, uh, someone mentions they were told by their parents to get an education so they wouldn't have to work in the dump. But of course, now they're working in the dump of the internet. Um, and so I try to draw that kind of comparison with uh, the trash on the internet, uh, trash in, in in the so-called real world, but also uh, how we read uh, Lacan itself. And, and there's, as you know, I mean, there's the official versions of Lacan and there's all kinds of uh, pirate versions online and through Cormac Gallagher. He's someone you should have on your show, Cormac Gallagher from Ireland. Definitely. Get his story of how he's, he's got all those amazing seminars up there, right? Including recordings. But so there's all these, and they, they're, the, the text, I mean, this is my English professor hat I'm wearing now, but the, in a print culture way, the, the text of Lacan is very unstable. Um, those seminars, the way they're edited in the French, in the English, uh, about the raw feed versus how it gets cleaned up. You know, there's all this debate around Jacqueline Miller and how that, the, the, the official editions, because he's the literary executor, I guess, they never have, almost never have any kind of footnotes, which is very, uh, you know, uh, sort of, for Lacan is such an elusive writer and speaker. He's always referring to philosophy and literature uh, and science uh, indeed, and, and psychoanalysis. And so to not have those there out of some kind of, you know, 
petty malarian sort of um this is gonna get me in trouble on your rendering unconscious podcast but uh, you know this idea that they should keep keep free of any kind of scholarly apparatus i think is uh, actually there's a disservice to readers of, of all kinds whether they're clinicians or academics or students or just general people interested in psychoanalysis yeah exactly we're pretty frank here on rendering unconscious so <laughs> tell us how know, you really feel <laughs> Does anybody else have any other comments that they wanted to make on each other's or? Well, I, I, as Chris... supply chain, uh, you know, I still haven't got the actual uh, physical copy of the book. Um, <laughs> I have the digital copy. Yeah. Mm. Did you have you requested the hard copy or uh, you stick it? Yeah. I asked him the senator. Yeah. Uh, Callum, Alice, Sandra, do you have the actual physical copies? Yeah, I do. I've had it for. I had the physical one. Yes. Oh, there, yeah, I, <laughs> I emailed them uh, uh, Powergrave. Uh, yeah, this morning actually, because I still. You need was, it, Paul. <laughs> yeah, without the object, and um, but I think uh, you know the irony there, but the reality is that you know the books themselves and objects. Uh, are implicated within the uh, global supply chain, which, which of course are implicated in uh, socio-natural processes of blockages and stutterings. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, you know, with the, uh, the afterword that we wrote, so instead of afterword, we went afterward to uh, speak to how, when we were kind of finalizing the book in summer 2020, this, this of course was, uh, several months deep into the pandemic which was ridden with uncertainty so uh the book is uh it, it came through uh, you know environmental crises of of many sorts that the pandemic uh, uh touches and and uh it, it's still the book itself for me at least the, the physical object is implicated in, in environmental uh political economy stuff as well so uh that i guess that bespeaks to how the environment really is you know, both the the real uh, and a, a, a master uh, signifier in terms of uh, the terrain of debate for what human existence, social society is about. It's also a, um, uh, and we should put, put a plug in here, even for our, our bitching about Palgrave, is that the Palgrave Lacan series that uh, Derek Cook and Callum Neal edit. I mean, I think it's it's an amazing sort of series of scholarly uh, texts, uh, mm -hmm. both single author like Isabel Millar's uh, new book on AI and psychoanalysis, uh, a lot of uh, books on different seminars, um, you know, Lacan and the non-human, Lacan and the post-human. Um, and uh, it's really, uh, I think it's a really uh, sort of fantastic uh, kind of collection. Um, and as well as the work that Derek and, and uh, Callum and Stein Van Hool do on their, their books on the, uh, the ACRI uh, that come out from Rutledge, they've done two out of those three now. And uh, so they're, uh, they're a great uh, force that's, that publishing and also those, uh, those sort of uh, academic comrades in terms of, mm -hmm. is, it, it does feel like there's kind of like a, uh, in the Anglo-American world at any rate, a kind of a, a renaissance of Lacanian uh, um, thinking and talking and studying and so on over the past uh, uh, 
uh, 15 or 20 years. Um, that's, uh, that's a lot of different voices. Uh, there's some political stuff in there and there's the, the theorists and the clinicians talking to each other and listening to each other. It's, it's kind of cool. But it is also interesting to note that it has come about uh, from the margins of academia. So it has all been extra labor, unpaid labor in a way, very, very often, uh, that has uh, made possible a certain uh, production of energy uh, and uh, coalescing into, in, in, into something that is definitely not defended by institutional centers. Uh, so it speaks also, uh, in fact, it is probably a, a minus to present yourself as <laughs> a Kenyan to a job interview or anything. You may want to be careful <laughs> about, about that. Uh, but uh, it, it is a kind of the work of the remainder, you know, uh, uh, the work of the uh, excess that has a certain implication. It's good to see. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think of always, you know, that time in the 70s when the Sex Pistols toured in North America and they mostly went to these out of the way places like Atlanta and San Francisco. Um, and they, they, they didn't play uh, the proper sort of cities in that. In the same way, when the Zizek conference was taking place, it was in, these, it was in Cincinnati um, or even the LAC conference. I mean, it was in Colorado twice. I mean, great place. I love, I mean, Colorado's amazing, obviously, but you know, it's not taking place at Harvard. It's not taking place at Berkeley, right? You know, and then it was at uh, Clark in uh, in Worcester, in Ma which is you know again a good good college, but it's it you know it's not at you know it's not at Harvard or Yale, right? Those those aren't the, you know a few stars may make their way through there, but otherwise it's uh, it's taking place in these uh, or even at like at Duquesne in uh, in Pittsburgh again a, a great school and so on, but it, it's it's not the Ivy League that's that's sort of embracing this kind of uh, this kind of work. Mm -hmm. That's true. These are passion projects, like this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's a great podcast, Vanessa. It is. It really is. I just, you know, I don't have any friends here. So this is my entire social life. <laughs> this is my entire social and collegial life is my podcast. So thank you. Are you? <laughs> so thanks for hanging out with me. <laughs> well, thanks for having us on your show. It was really amazing. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yeah thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Drs. Clint Burnham, Paul Kingsbury, Alessandra Capodoni, and Callum Matheson. Check out their book, Lacan and the Environment, from the Palgrave Lacan series, edited by Callum Neal and Derek Hook. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now, the song, Please Join Us, 
from the new album, The Cutting Up of Love and Language, a collaboration with Pete Murphy, available digitally at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page. Just visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Please join us. I think maybe it's getting late. Maybe time is running out. Let's go upstairs. Let's go upstairs. I lean in and suck till the end of time. Till the end of time. We were both receiving stiff cocks. You are certainly Yes, most definitely. Accept my solution and be dominated by sheer force. I turn my head, placing it between my fantastic legs. Fuck, bum, fuck, bum, fuck. Well, how about that? began. This is strictly a philosophical observation. <laughs> <laughs> 